0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the season 10 special. Just a one part of this time, which I'm sure you'll be glad to hear. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit Did you know it can take up to two weeks to make one Jelly bean. Part of what takes so long is that the candy rests a lot in between the steps that's sort of involved for the process. Sometimes it rests for a day, other times it's for several days. It depends on the flavour. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Listen to people and treat people as you find them. There's an inherent goodness in most people. Don't prejudge people. That was my mum's advice anyway. That was said by the actor Sean Bean, a Yorkshire legend. Now, this case was suggested by five listeners, so it's about time I covered it. Molly Hope and Michael Scully suggested it via BritishMurders.com. Katie Hardin did so via Messenger. And Gary Snaith and Jaden Linnett did so via Instagram. We're in Killamarsh this week, a village in northeast Derbyshire. Here are five quick fire facts about Killamarsh. Number one. The name Killermarsh is first attested in the Doomsday Book of ten eighty six where it appears as Chinewold Mask. What the hell does that say? Chiinwald Marsk I don't even know how to say that. I've practised it a few times. The name means Chinewolds Marsh, so maybe that's how you say it. Who knows Number two. The community of Killamarsh originally grew from a farming community self-sufficient in agricultural and dairy produce since the Middle Ages. Number three. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Killamarsh became a coal mining village as the burgeoning Sheffield iron industry demanded coal and transport links with Sheffield matured. Number four. Fred Greaves, the first person in Derbyshire during World War I to be awarded a Victoria Cross, was born in Killamarsh in 1890. And number five, footballer Millie Bright, who is the captain of Chelsea FC Women and was also part of the Lionesses Women's Euro 2022 winning squad, attended Killamarsh Junior School and used to play for Killamarsh Dynamos. The approximate population of Marsh according to the 2021 census, is 9,261. Before we get going, I want to offer another content warning, as this story more than justifies it. Firstly, this is an extremely recent case. The person responsible for the horrendous crimes i'm about to discuss was only sentenced in december last year so i want to exercise some caution with the details as it's still so fresh and raw we're also three days removed assuming you're listening on the day this episode was released from the second anniversary of this story's tragic events typically i don't cover such recent cases But as I said earlier, five listeners have requested this story, so it makes sense to cover it as it's clearly something my audience wants to hear about. The two main areas I want to warn you about are the murders of multiple children, as well as the sexual assault of one of those children. This has been an incredibly difficult case to research for that reason, and I offer my sincerest condolences to the family members whose lives have been devastated by the events I'm about to discuss. As always, I'll tell the story as objectively as possible, so I will spend a fair portion of this episode discussing the person responsible for these heinous crimes. In this case, it's crucial to do so, because there were so many failings by the system over more than a decade, which means that, in theory, this tragedy could have been avoided entirely. That's why I've included the subtitle, An Avoidable Tragedy, with a question mark in this episode's title. Terry Harris is the first person I'd like to introduce you to this week. Born in roughly 1986, Terry was the only child of her loving parents, Lawrence Harris and Angela Smith. Brought up in the east end of England's capital city, Terry remained in her native London for 17 years before uprooting 180 miles north to Sheffield, South Yorkshire with her mum. Not much is known about her parents' relationship, but Lawrence didn't make the move with Terry so it's pretty logical to assume that his relationship with Angela, sadly, did not last. Lawrence was living in Essex by then, with Terry making the 190 mile trip south as and when she could to spend some time with him. Growing up thereafter, predominantly with her mum, meant that Terry had an immensely close relationship with her. The two were besties to say the least, and Terry's naturally caring nature was displayed in full when Angela was going through an illness of some kind that required her to be cared for. The mother and daughter were a dynamic duo who could easily spend hours upon hours chatting about anything and everything. They thoroughly enjoyed each other's company. It won't surprise you after hearing about Terry's caring ways that she earned a living as a care worker. Putting others first was what she did best. She was great at it. Her selfless nature was known to everyone who knew her, especially her ultra-proud parents and grandparents with whom she also shared a close bond. Terry's parents have said of their daughter, Terry would put herself out not just for her family and friends, but anyone who needed her help. She absolutely loved her work as a care worker and would go above and beyond for the people she cared for. She was her mum's rock throughout her illnesses and was absolutely idolised by all her grandparents. Terry idolised them back in return. As she began to mature into the kind and friendly woman she became, Terry's East End roots were never far from the surface. She was an avid football fan, with former Upton Park residents West Ham United being a favourite team. By around 2007 or 2008, Terry was pregnant with her first child, a son called John Paul Bennett. John's dad, Jason Bennett, would have two kids in total with Terry a couple of years after John was born, the doting parents completed their family by welcoming a little girl to the world whom they named Lacey. But let's talk a little bit about John first. I want to clarify that I'm unsure if his first name was John Paul, as in it was meant to be said in a double barreled way, or whether Paul was his middle name. I have seen some quotes from his dad Jason referring to him as just John though, so I'll be referring to him as such for the remainder of the episode. John was the apple of his dad's eye. Described as being Jason's mini-me, the teenager had first attended a primary school in the Woodhouse suburb of Sheffield before moving on to attend Outwood Academy City, a welcoming and supportive academy with outstanding Ofsted-rated leadership. A well-mannered lad with an inquisitive mind and affectionate nature, John was keen on all things computers and video games, with his preference being on the side of Xbox rather than PlayStation in the console wars. Of course, like his mum, John was mad about football and no doubt also supported the Hammers. I'm taking a logical guess there. John could just as easily have supported Chef United or Wednesday, seeing as he was born and raised in the city. We know by now that Terry's was a loving family with a tight-knit bond. John was loved dearly by both sets of grandparents, Jason's parents being Trevor and Debbie Bennett, with Angela saying of her grandson, John was a real thinker, thoughtful towards everyone and was very affectionate. Even as a typical teenager who loved playing his games console, he always gave me a kiss and told me he loved me. When reflecting back on the relationship he had with his firstborn child, Jason has said, My son John was absolutely my mini-me. Loving, fiery, funny and passionate with the most beautiful caring heart you could find. Behind his tough exterior he was the most loving son you could wish for. His love for his mum was amazing. He just wanted everyone to be happy. Like his sister John was clearly raised the right way. A testament to both Terry and Jason's stellar parenting. Lacey Bennett attended the same schools as John and was just as into her football as he and her mum were. Despite her allegiances to whichever club she supported, that all is said to have changed when football heartthrob Jack Grealish joined Premier League champions Man City in August 2021. City was now a new favourite team, but she only had a brief period of time to enjoy seeing her favourite player playing the beautiful game for them. Her life, along with that of her brother, mum and friend, would be taken just a month and a half later. Before we get into the main timeline though, let's discuss some more details about Lacey before moving on to her friend, Connie Gent. Lacey loved the social media platform TikTok, as so many people do these days, not just kids. She would record dances with her best mate Connie and post them online, copying whichever trend happened to be doing the rounds that day. Jason said of his daughter's TikTok passion, Lacey was my TikTok queen, creating dance after dance. Dancing was clearly one of her passions and she regularly performed to family members and friends. Described as being the ultimate girly girl, Lacey enjoyed nothing more than putting on a show and receiving the plaudits afterwards. Along with her brother, Lacey had a bit of an inside family tradition with her dad whenever they drove around in his car. They would belt out the song Never Enough from The Greatest Showman until their voices almost broke. You can imagine how much laughter and joy that brought Jason, as well as the kids. Like her best friend Lacey, Connie Gent was an 11-year-old pupil at Outwood Academy City who was also obsessed with making dance videos for TikTok. Her close relationship with Lacey was no secret. Charlie Gent, Connie's dad, would hear about nothing else other than the two girls' exploits and adventures whenever she stayed over at his house. A lover of music and singing, you can imagine the two girls performing to whomever they could get to watch them sing and dance to the current trendiest song in the charts. Referring to his daughter as his little sidekick, Charlie has gone on record saying, Connie was an absolute superstar in every way. She had a gift. If someone was down, she could instantly make them feel okay. She lit up every room she went in and meant something to everyone she came across, even in hard times. Connie had the ability to keep everyone smiling. Kerry Shelton, Connie's mum, has revealed further insight into the wonderful little girl her daughter was and explained how much joy she brought to everyone. Connie had an amazing imagination and was always ready to put on a show, especially at Christmas when she'd write plays to act out with her brothers and sister. At birthdays, Halloween, or at any given chance, Connie would be organising, making, or baking. She always made things so special. All three of the young children in this story were clearly raised wonderfully, and the world was a better place for having them in it. Sadly, all of their lives, including John and Lacey's mum Terry's, would be taken away within the space of a few hours by the next person I'm going to introduce. There's a hell of a lot more information available about Damien Bendel than Terry, John, Lacey and Connie, mainly because of an independent serious further offence review published in January 2023 by H.M. Inspectorate of Probation. I've linked the full report in my show notes if you're interested in reading it. Bendel was born on January 6, 1990. That's about as much as we know for sure about his childhood and early life. There's no information regarding the identity of his parents, that I could find anyway, which, given what he did, doesn't come as much of a surprise. That leaves us with nothing more than pure speculation based on the back of Bendel's testimony regarding the alleged abusive childhood he experienced. According to Bendel, he was subjected to physical abuse from his stepdad on multiple occasions. It doesn't go into detail as to what said abuse consisted of, but as a result of the emotional damage it caused, Bendel found himself navigating towards older children when it came to choosing his peers. A feeling of perceived protection, perhaps? Whatever the reason, he felt like he belonged in a crowd of older kids. Just 12 months before the turn of the millennium, a 9-year-old Bendel was supposedly involved in the local drugs gang and earned his stripes as a street-level dealer. If that's true, it speaks volumes about how little his guardians, and I use that term loosely, cared about his whereabouts and safety. Bendel said he was exposed not only to a plethora of illegal drugs and their users, but he was also heavily involved in criminal activity, with robbery and armed robbery being something he would go on to be charged for on more than one occasion as he grew older. The remainder of his teenage years saw Bendel in trouble with police on numerous occasions with varying levels of charges and sentences being handed down. A day after his 14th birthday, Bendel was reprimanded for criminal damage after deciding to egg someone's house. Just 13 years old when the offence was committed, Bendel was reported to the police by the woman who lived in the egged property and he soon found himself with his tail between his legs. His series of petty crimes continued thereafter into his young adult years with the next serious charge being received in April 2010. By the age of 19, Bendel was considered a veteran drug dealer, having been involved in it for a decade. In December 2009, he was caught in possession of cocaine, a Class A drug, but the quantity recovered must not have been sufficient enough to warrant jail time. Likely only having the drugs on him for personal use, Bendel received a caution and was sent on his way. Two months after receiving the caution, Bendel's criminal activity escalated drastically when he committed an unarmed robbery with such ferocity that it left the victim, a man of Asian origin, unconscious. Attacking Asian men would become somewhat of a theme with Bendel, something which he attributed to being a member of the Aryan Brotherhood a notoriously violent white supremacist group and organised crime syndicate. Upon his flesh were two neo-Nazi inspired tattoos, but questions about his official status as a member of the AB soon came into question. I'm no expert, but I believe it's a US-only based prison gang, right? I could be wrong, but his probation officers were equally as sceptical, despite Bendel's claims of mass violence towards those of particular ethnic and minority groups. When the aforementioned report was released in January, they stated that they found no evidence that probation officers undertook any checks with the police's gang unit to ascertain the truth of Bendel's claim to having been a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. For the robbery in June 2010, Bendel was handed a three-year jail sentence in June of the following year. It came to light that he had not only beaten up the Asian man, but he'd also been yelling racially abusive language towards him as he did so. Worryingly, throughout the term of his sentence, Bendel was assessed as being a low risk when it came to the harm he posed to known adults and children. It's important to reiterate that the man he attacked was not known to him, so his risk to the general public was likely not classed as low, but to those who knew him, he was essentially no threat. Again, that's according to the probation assessment at the time, one of several potential mistakes in this harrowing case. Between August 16th 2012 and the end of his sentence in June 2014, Bendel was managed on licence in the community by probation services in the southwest. Throughout those almost two years, he remained at his mum's house on home detention. Behaving himself during those years he was on licence, Bendel soon slipped back into the world of criminality, reverting to his tried and trusted method of robbery in June 2015. This time, the attempted robbery was again an escalation of his last attempt as he came armed with a six-inch knife. The victim, another Asian man, used his quick wits and managed to grab a nearby golf club which he used to fight off Bendel before he ultimately abandoned the robbery and ran off. It's unclear where exactly the first robbery took place, but this one occurred in a newsagent's. Given there would have been CCTV readily available, Bendel was once again caught by police and received another three-year jail sentence that August for his troubles. It became apparent during this most recent jail stretch that Bendel was a drug addict, something he may have been for a good while, but it's the first time it was put on record as it's the first time he told anyone with any authority. His robberies were done to fund his addiction, and he didn't stop at robbing local shops either. Bendel's family and partners were just as at risk of being robbed by him. That's how much his addictions had taken over his life. If you're listening to this and thinking I'm attempting to provide some justification for what Bendel did throughout his life culminating in the tragedy at Marsh, then I want to clarify that I'm definitely not. I always provide both sides of every story in an objective way as I feel context and background information are crucial when attempting to analyse a crime of this magnitude. I'm a bit concerned that some listeners will think I'm coming at this with a sympathetic angle regarding Bendel, just couldn't be further from the truth. Anyway, with that off my chest, let's carry on with Bendel's background timeline. Another probation team assessed him as posing a high risk of harm to the public. That was the first time he received that risk level, but he still remained a low risk to those he knew as well as children the high-risk rating was justified because on May 10th, 2016, Bendel violently attacked two prison officers, leaving one of them with injuries so serious they required surgery and spent an extended period of time off work. The attack had supposedly been planned by Bendel for some time before it took place, but the motive was trivial. He'd been refused a prison transfer. An interesting tidbit that doesn't have much context or reasoning behind it was that one of Bendel's exes phoned the prison in Exeter, where he was incarcerated, and asked them to prevent him from ever seeing her again. The identity of the woman is not known, and it's at her word that we assume she was Bendel's ex, but she volunteered some information regarding his threatening behaviour during the relationship that adds further worrying fuel to the fire that is his dangerous personality. He not only stole from her, so said the woman, but he was also physically abusive towards her. She never informed the police of any incidents at the time they happened, but she probably felt safer coming forward knowing that Bendel was behind bars. How about this for some more unbelievable failings by the system? There was such a delay in him being charged for the attack on the two prison officers that Bendel actually ended up being released from prison on licence on December 20th 2016. I shit you not when I say that just one day later, he was recalled to prison after failing to report to his allocated approved premises. Those are properties that house ex-prisoners in the community. It's been admitted by probation practitioners working with Bendel at the time that their workloads were unusually high at the time and the pressure was overwhelming. A combination of staff turnover, sickness and short-term placements meant that only a few cases could be effectively managed and many mistakes occurred as a result. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. With Bendel back in prison after breaching his licence conditions, he was soon charged with GBH and two counts of assault against the two prison officers. In January 2017, he received a 30-month prison sentence but was released on licence 9 months early on October 31st, 2018. If you've never experienced staying at an approved premises before, then let me explain what the crack is. There are a set of strict rules you must follow at all times. Breaking of said rules, or should I say being caught breaking said rules, would lead to you ending up back in prison. You will be given a curfew. You won't be allowed to take drugs unless they're prescribed or consume alcohol and will be expected to take a drug or alcohol test if asked. You'll be told whether or not you can have visitors. You must let staff search your room and personal property. You'll need to get permission to bring in any electrical items. The list goes on, but those are some of the main ones. Bendel, naturally, wasn't one for following rules, and due to his penchant for drugs and alcohol, he was soon found to have breached the rules of the approved premises and was subsequently recalled to prison in November 2018. Between December 2018 and June 2019, three parole reviews occurred, with the outcome of each being that Bendel would not be released from prison. Frustrated at the lack of movement regarding his parole, Bendel refused to participate in any more hearings, but he wouldn't have to wait long anyway. The end of the 30-month sentence came at the end of July, or the beginning of August perhaps, with Bendel once again becoming a free man on August 9th with no post-release probation supervision. His sentence had been served in full and he was not on parole, which is why no supervision were put in place. Seeing as he was not being monitored or supervised, we can only imagine what sort of antics Bendel got up to. But a call from Wiltshire Police's Child Sexual Exploitation Unit on March 17th 2020 gives us a concerning idea. They contacted the probation service on the back of concerns they held regarding the risk Bendel posed towards young girls. He posed a high risk of serious harm to girls and the harm was sexual in nature. They had evidence of some kind which led to them making the call although I can't say for sure what said evidence was because the probation service did not inquire as to why the police were interested in Bendel at that time. The details of the detective constable working the case at Wiltshire Police were left on the contact log but nobody contacted him after that initial phone call to ascertain their concerns. This is the point in the story where the dots start to connect. Bendel met Terry on a mobile dating app around a month into the first UK lockdown, April 2020. Shortly before that, Terry and Jason's relationship had ended. The circumstances of how and why are unknown to me, but I think it's fair to say that signing up for a dating app in the immediate aftermath of a relationship breakdown can be considered a pretty normal thing to do. I won't go into the potential dangers of using such apps, but there's plenty of data out there should you wish to conduct your own research. Bendel must have gone on a serious charm offensive because not long after meeting Terry online, he moved into her home in Woodhouse, thus revealing his existence to John and Lacey. Over the next year and a half, the probation service made a series of catastrophic errors when handling Bendel's case after he committed an act of arson without intent in the Wiltshire town of Swindon on May 9, 2020. Because of the backlog of court cases due to the COVID-19 pandemic, nine months would pass before Bendel had to face up to what he'd done in court. During that interim period, concerns were raised by friends and family of Terry, including her mum Angela, Due to the behaviour being displayed by a new boyfriend. The main concern was his drug use. It's not exactly something you want displayed around children, but it also will have affected how Bendel behaved towards Terry and anyone else he interacted with. The extent of his drug fuel behaviour is left open to speculation. I couldn't find any information to indicate that Bendel was abusive towards Terry, whether that be physically, emotionally or mentally, but given his history with ex-girlfriends based on their testimony, I'd suggest it can't be ruled out. In September 2020, Terry and the kids moved away from Woodhouse to be closer to Angela, ultimately settling in our main location, Killer Marsh. When Bendel finally appeared in court charged with arson on February 24th, 2021, it was requested that a pre-sentence report be completed by a probation court report author. The UK government website describes a pre-sentence report as an expert assessment of the nature and causes of an offender's behaviour, the risk they pose and to whom, as well as an independent recommendation of the sentencing options available to the court. On the back of that request, the author spoke to Bendel on two separate occasions, as was the practice at the time given COVID restrictions, and delivered what is known as a fast delivery report to the court on June 7th. A fast delivery report is typically shorter and less detailed than a standard pre-sentence report and can be used for medium risk of harm cases. Even though four months had passed, a series of COVID-related delays meant that a full standard report was not completed. Bizarrely, the report was, for some reason, backdated to March 24th and its quality was said to be extremely poor by the inspectors who carried out the serious further offence review published in January of this year. There was deemed to be insufficient critical analysis of Bendel's case within the report as well as the risk he posed to the public being incorrectly stated as medium rather than high, which in hindsight it clearly was. He was also classed as low risk when it came to harming his partners and children. That led to a misrepresentation of the danger he posed to those close to him when he attended court to be sentenced for arson. The sentencing recommendation within the fast delivery report said a curfew requirement was suitable. That's it. As a result, Bendel was handed a 24-month suspended sentence order on June 9th the details of which included 175 unpaid work hours, 20 rehabilitation activity requirement days, a 6-month alcohol treatment requirement and a 5-month curfew requirement. For those who aren't aware, a suspended sentence order allows the offender to serve their sentence in the community rather than in custody, hence their sentence is suspended. 2 years or 24 months is the maximum sentence for an SSO. Because Bendel gave Terry's home address to the court, the National Probation Service's East Midlands Division, as it was known at the time, was allocated the case. Bendel's sentence in the summer of 2021 came at a time of mass change for the Probation Service as it became unified. In fact, his sentencing came just a fortnight before the unification, leading to an entirely inappropriate curfew condition for him to be living with Terry and her children at 54 Chandos Crescent in Killamarsh. Further mistakes were made due to what has been described by the probation service's then newly formed East Midlands region as unmanageable workloads. Again, high levels of staff turnover combined with untrained, unqualified and inexperienced staff, as well as many staff members being off work sick, meant that Bendel's case was allocated to a probation officer who was inadequately skilled and prepared for a case of such magnitude. Even a risk assessment in July of that year, which stated Bendel's risk would drastically increase if he began consuming drugs and alcohol, didn't prevent him from doing so the following month. After they were informed of Bendel smoking weed and drinking high ABV spirits, the allocated probation practitioner contacted Children's Services. They inquired as to whether a referral was suitable due to Bendel's weed smoking, but no formal referral was made or recommended. Despite having to work unpaid hours and attend rehab, Bendel did neither in the first six weeks after his sentencing. Appointments were regularly missed, with a total of seven appointments being attended, four in person and three over the phone, by the end of August. As we move into September 2021, the month in which our main timeline began, we start with Bendel failing to comply with another telephone appointment for which he received an initial warning. By that time, Terry was pregnant with Bendel's child, but text messages sent between the two suggested that their relationship had taken a turn for the worse. Bendel also somehow managed to convince his probation officer that he was no longer consuming drugs or alcohol, despite the fact he regularly still was. The handling of Bendel's case between his June 2021 sentencing and the events I'm about to discuss that September was later described in the January 2023 review as falling well below the necessary standard required by the probation service. Now, there's absolutely no nice way to segue into the main timeline, so we may as well jump right in. A small preamble to this story is the testimony of a witness, a fellow neighbour living at Chandos Crescent, who claimed to have heard Bendel and Terry having an argument on Thursday, September 16th, after which Bendel reportedly shouted as he walked away from Terry's home, This is not finished yet. The following day, Connie returned to Lacey's home once school finished after asking her mum if she could stay there for a sleepover. With Terry and Connie's mum Kerry giving the green light, the girls prepared themselves for a night of girly fun. On the Saturday, Connie and Lacey spent the afternoon outside the property selling sweets from a stall. Their intention was to raise money for the charity Cancer Research UK. That just speaks volumes as to how well-raised the two girls were and just how much kindness, love and light they brought to the world. With the girls and John being given a curfew of 8pm that evening, all three of them were back at Terry's house in good time. Connie had asked her mum if she could stay over for one more night, which Kerry advised she could, as long as it was okay with Terry, which it was. The last contact Connie Gent had with her mum was shortly after 9pm, when Kerry sent her a message on WhatsApp saying goodnight. Connie replied instantly with a good night of her own. John was speaking to his dad that night via message regarding what Christmas present he wanted from him, that appears to be the last interaction between John and Jason, At 9.42pm John sent a text to Terry letting her know that he was about to get into the shower and by the time 10pm came around all three of the children were reportedly tucked up in bed after having brushed their teeth. If you're wondering where Bendel was during those hours he was desperately trying to score some gear from his dealer whom he'd been phoning constantly with no answer. Bendel, who also sold drugs, had also been sending messages to all of his clients in the hope of making a quick buck likely with the end goal being to further fund his own habit. Between the last text message sent by John to Terry at 9.42pm and roughly 5am the next morning, Bendel murdered Terry, John, Lacey and Connie with a claw hammer. They were each attacked one by one and in separate rooms in what was an extremely cold and calculated series of attacks. After attacking Lacey and leaving her for dead, Bendel raped her on at least two separate occasions before using a ligature of some kind to strangle her. That last act contributed to her death along with the blows from the claw hammer. Acting as though nothing had happened after the fact, Bendel visited a local store to buy some cigs and took John's beloved Xbox console in a taxi to a store in Sheffield where he exchanged it for a pittance of cash which he then used to buy drugs. His later testimony saw him claim that he then consumed three to four bags of cocaine before finally passing out. On Sunday, September 19th, Bendel was arrested in connection with the murders of Terry, John, Lacey and Connie in a moment caught for the world to see on police body cam footage. If you want to see it, it's online, but it is a tough watch. Derbyshire police received a call at 7.25am that morning from a concerned individual later confirmed to be one of Bendel's relatives, possibly his mum. They informed the police that Bendel had stabbed himself and that they held concerns about his health and the potential risk he posed to others in that situation. As the first set of officers made their way to 54 Chandos Crescent, Bendel phoned 999 himself at 7.38am. He soon bumped into the officers sent to the property on the back of his mum's phone call and calmly informed them that he'd killed four people and stabbed himself twice with a bread knife, once in the chest and once in the stomach. He was then formally arrested on suspicion of murder at 7.47am. Bendel then said something truly disturbing. He said, The whole house is covered in claret. I used a hammer. Obviously, I'm going to prison as I've murdered four people. Bet you don't usually get four murders in Killamarsh, do you? Well, five, because my missus was having a baby. Terry and Lacey's bodies were discovered in the property's master bedroom, whilst John was found in the bathroom and Connie was found in another bedroom. Jason, who was on holiday in Devon at the time his two children and ex-partner were killed, was informed and had to drive four long hours home on his own, knowing that both his kids were now dead. I can't even begin to imagine how horrible that must have been. A few days later, once Bendel's wounds had been treated, he was charged with the four murders. Peter Nieto, the area coroner for Derby and Derbyshire, confirmed that Terry, John, Lacey and Connie all displayed defensive wounds, indicating they did their utmost to defend themselves from Bendel's onslaught. The immediate aftermath of the tragedy saw hundreds gather for a candlelit vigil at Baker Park, just behind Terry's house, on the Monday. A GoFundMe page was also set up to help raise money for the affected families, but I can't state how much money it raised as the link to it no longer exists. As Terry, her children and Connie were buried the following month, hundreds from the local community gathered to celebrate their lives before more private ceremonies involving friends and family took place. Terry's casket was covered in the West Ham United flag as well as blue and claret ribbons, the club colours of her beloved hammers. Fendel's trial began on November 24th, 2022 at Derby Crown Court, with Mr Justice Sweeney overseeing the proceedings. At a hearing just before the trial, he'd pleaded not guilty to all four murder counts, opting instead to plead guilty to manslaughter. He'd also pleaded not guilty regarding the rape of Lacey, a child under 13, but once the trial commenced, Bendel changed his plea to guilty for all counts. Once charged with four counts of murder and one count of rape of a child under 13, Bendel received a whole life order from Judge Sweeney, who said, On your behalf, Bendel, it is accepted that the seriousness of your offences is so exceptionally high, the court must make a whole life order. I agree. You are now aged 32 and have a significant background of violent offending, including robbery. As the prosecution have said, you carried out vicious, brutal and cruel attacks on a defenceless woman and three young children, during which you went around the house attacking them. To date, no explanation or motive has been given by Bendel as to why he carried out the attacks. And that was the story of the murders of Terry Harris, John and Lacey Bennett, and Connie Gent. Thanks again, Molly, Michael, Katie, Gary, and Jaden for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I'm going to read four new reviews this week, and I'm starting with a two-star one, just to show that I don't only read the good ones. Spurs Hater left a two-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Content is okay but the accent and the fact that geezer reads out positive reviews of himself means I can no longer listen. I can't exactly help my accent, but regarding the reviews, the stories I tell are always done by that point. You can always listen and then switch me off before the outro if it bothers you that much. You said the content's okay though, so that's good. L-Town Boy left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts which reads, Hello Stuart, after finding your podcast around April, I've binged throughout and now I have caught up. What am I going to do now, Stu? Just like to say, it's the best podcast hands down, and your attention to detail, the lesser and well-known cases, compact episodes and the icebreakers are a perfect mix. Keep up the good work, Stuart, and never change. All the best, Patrick. Chappers 450 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, found your show on Spotify and I was instantly hooked. The combination of tangents and morbidity make it an addictive listen. I love listening to you while I'm working. Definitely makes the day pass. Keep up the good work. And finally, Jim Dent left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, Hi Stuart, I'm loving the podcast, which keeps me company on my job as a delivery driver. My dad does that as well. Is also called Jim, which is weird. Feels a strange thing to listen to gruesome tales of true crime every day. I'm still playing catch-up, but your presentation style makes it seem like a perfectly normal thing. If possible, I'd like to cover the story of one or other of the two murderers I've known in the past. Graham Jarman, who I worked with in the 1980s when he wouldn't say boo to a goose, but went on to kidnap young girls and eventually murdered pensioner Judith Richardson in Hexham. And Robert Garbert, a local shopkeeper who was convicted of murdering his wife at their post office. I'd be interested in your take on the evidence presented in this case. Cheers and keep up the great work, Jim. I've added both cases to my spreadsheet for you, Jim thank you Spurs Hater, Patrick, Chappers450 and Jim for leaving those reviews. If you want to leave a review and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave me a star rating on Spotify. If you want to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Thomas Fordier, Tommy Voss and Andy. Thomas, I hope I'm saying your surname right there, mate. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. And that does it for another end-of-season special. Back to season 11 next week. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio!